going to continue in our worship this morning through the preaching of God's word. And so I want to read our passage for us, which is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or it'll be on the screens as well. But I want to encourage you to read along with me as I read our passage. Starting in Hebrews 10, verse 19, it says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If you will bow to me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that through the blood of Christ, we can approach the throne of grace with great confidence, knowing that our sins have been cleansed, our sins have been forgiven through his sacrifice. Lord, we pray this morning that as we engage and study your word, that you be with Pastor Kevin, that you give him clarity of mind as he faithfully proclaims your word. And Lord, we, we pray for ourselves that as we engage with your word, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are receptive and awaiting to be molded and shaped and conformed into the image of your son, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you for being here uh, this morning. And if you are in our overflow room or if you're joining us online, um, I'd like to say thank you for worshiping with us as well. Uh, full disclosure, before we get started, I came down with some kind of cold yesterday. It is uh, one of these sinus deals. It's not enough to put you in the bed, uh, but it's enough just to make you miserable for a few weeks until it runs its course. And so hopefully I can make it through this, um, through this message today uh, without um, engaging in too much of a coughing fit. I want you to imagine for the next few moments uh, that you were not born uh, in the United States sometime in the last 80 years and that you did not live here uh, in the year 2023. Rather, uh, you were born sometime around 50 AD and you live uh, in Rome, the capital city of the vast Roman Empire. Uh, and imagine, if you will, for a moment that you were born into a Jewish family uh, and that you live in a Jewish community there in that city. And although this will be hard for roughly half of you, imagine that you were born as a young man or born um, and grew up as a young man in this Jewish family uh, there in Rome. For you and your family, there were some days that were difficult. Uh, the emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, sometime in the 40s, kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Uh, and so actually, you were not born in Rome. You were born in the Italian countryside, uh, in the home, <clears throat> home of some family members who had allowed uh, your, your parents and your siblings to stay there during this exile. 
But then Claudius died, and the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. And so as a young child, you returned with your family. And for you, life was pretty good. Uh, you lived in a, in a Jewish neighborhood. It was a Jewish tight-knit community. You spent your days playing with your siblings and your cousins, running around through alleyway, alleyways, going down to the Tiber River and skipping rocks across the river and sort of playing there on the banks of the river. Uh, life was, was pretty good for you. You enjoyed the holidays, getting together with your family and your extended family, uh, celebrating all the different uh, Jewish holy days, uh, Passover and Rosh Hashanah and Hanukkah. You enjoyed those times. You would gather and you would eat, and there was lots of laughter and lots of, lots of celebrating. And for you, most days were pretty good. When you turned 13, your, your parents got you a job with a local tailor, uh, uh, an individual who was in the synagogue uh, working there in his clothing store. I say job, it really wasn't a job. It was an apprenticeship, like an internship. You got paid very little, but, but you enjoyed it. You liked the guy that you worked for. He seemed to be honest. He had a good reputation, both within the Jewish community and as well uh, in the outside Roman Gentile world. And so you would go to work every day and you would work for this individual and he noticed how hard you worked and that you were honest and the customers seemed to like you. And so after three years, he announced to you that the internship was over, that your apprenticeship was done and now he would actually hire you and give you a decent wage. Uh, enough for you to be able to get by. It wasn't great, but, but it was enough so that one day if you decided to get married and, and have children, you could earn enough to support your family until you could save enough money and open your own business, and, and then you would really make it. Then you would make your fortune. By the way, speaking of marriage, your parents had started having some conversations with another family about their daughter who you knew from the synagogue, uh, you didn't know her well, but, but she was cute, and you saw her at different events. You saw her talking to other girls, and the conversations were just, you know, they were kind of early initial conversations. You're only 16, but probably next year, when you turn 17, the conversations would become a little more serious. Maybe a little more concrete plans would be in place. And so again, for your life at you at this point was was pretty good. Most days were pretty good. Except right in the middle of your very normal, predictable existence, this crazy thing happens. There's this customer who comes into the store week after week, and this customer talks to you every time he comes in about the fact that he is following the Jewish Messiah. He's Jewish, but he believes that the Messiah had come. Uh, this Jewish anticipated Messiah that he calls Jesus was born in Jerusalem, and there he died, and he and other uh, Jewish individuals are now following Christ. And you hear him talk about about how all the prophecies and all these Old Testament teachings pointed towards the Christ, and you hear him talk about how these different prophets predicted that he would come, but you think, I, I, I don't know. It sounds like just another Jewish zealot. And, and you start to think, yeah, he, he may have claimed to be somebody, but after a while, it will all fizzle out, and, and, and it'll be gone, and they'll disperse. 
except it doesn't fizzle out. In fact, you hear of more and more individuals all throughout the Roman Empire who claim to follow Christ. They're called followers of the way, or some of them refer to themselves as Christians, little Christ. And you hear about these Christians and these who are followers of the way and how their movement is spreading all throughout the Roman Empire. And and so you dismiss it, but this customer continues to come week after week, and he talks to you, and you notice there is something that is different about him. He just seems to exude this joy and this peace like you've never seen before. And so finally, eventually, you decide, okay, I'll listen to you. And he says, hey, I'm part of this group, and we meet every week in this home in this area called Trastevere. Tras is the Latin word for a cross. Tevere is the Latin word for the river that runs through Rome that we call the Tiber River. They call the Tevere River. And just across the river, just across from this Jewish neighborhood in which you live, there in that area, there was this home, and these Christians are meeting in this home. And he tells you, yes, and our leader is a man named Peter. Peter was someone who walked with Jesus. For three years, he followed Jesus around Jerusalem, around the countryside in Judea. And he was there when Jesus was crucified, and he saw the resurrected Jesus. And he says, you need to come to one of our gatherings. We meet every Sunday night. Just come and listen to what Peter has to say. And you put him off, and you put him off, and you put him off. But then one Sunday evening, you decide... You'll take this short journey from your home across the river to this home. And so you go, and there a group of, of individuals meet in a home, and you listen to them sing these worship songs. And after they sing, this man named Peter stands up, and he begins to explain how Jesus was the anticipated Messiah. And he quotes these verses from the Jewish Torah and from the prophets and from the Psalms, and they make perfect sense and in your heart and in your mind you begin to say you know maybe he's right maybe there is something to this but more than being intellectually convinced there is this stirring deep within your soul as Peter talks about salvation as he talks talks about being forgiven of every sin past present and future as he talks about this joy and this peace and contentment that is found in Christ, as he talks about knowing that he is able to stand before God, knowing that he has been forgiven, to have this confidence that he has eternal life, as he talks about all of these things, there is a stirring that is deep within your soul. And you want what he has more than your next breath. You crave what he is talking about. And so that night, there in this home in Trastevere, you respond to this message of Peter that he calls the gospel or the good news, and you pray and you become a follower of Christ. That night as you walk back home, as you cross over the river, you walk about two feet above the ground just floating with with this freedom that you have experienced like you've never experienced before, knowing that you are forgiven of your sins 
that it's not a ritual that you have to go through or a sacrifice that has to be made or that you have to make sure that you do everything right, that all of this has been done on your behalf through Jesus Christ. And you go home that night forgiven of everything that you've ever done. When you get home, your parents are already in bed and so you go to sleep that night you sleep the best you have slept in months maybe even years and you get up the next morning and as your parents are seated eating breakfast you begin to tell them what happened the night before you won't believe it I was in this home and this man named Peter talked and as you begin to share with them the decision that you made you can see the look on their faces and you say and it was great and your dad responds and you can see that he doesn't think that it was great at all at all and in fact he yells at you and he tells you that you've got about two seconds to become unchristian or he's going to kick you out of the house your mom sits there and she just weeps as your dad yells and screams at you over this decision that you've made to follow Christ And you say, wait, Daddy, and you try to explain, and you try to explain the way Peter explained the night before, but you you just can't seem to do it. The words come out all jumbled, and you're all mixed up, and you're not able to explain why you've made this decision. And your dad finally says, that's it. Get out of my house, and do not come home until you've given up on this whole Jesus thing. You leave the house, and you... You just sort of walk around the streets, through the alleys. You make your way down to the river, and there by the Tiber River, you just start to pray, God, what have I done? I know that this decision that I made was not one that was made just out of emotion. That it's the right decision. It makes sense. It's exactly what I'm supposed to do. But God, look what's happened. My family has rejected me because of the decision that I have made to follow you and to follow your son, Jesus Christ. What am I supposed to do next? And as the sun begins to make its way up in the sky, you decide you better get to work. You're supposed to be there at noon. You don't want to be late. And you walk into your place of employment and your boss looks at you and says, get out. Your dad came by here a little while ago. He told me what you've done. And if you want to follow Christ, you can't work here. And until you give up on this Jesus foolishness, you are out of a job. You leave and you wander through the streets and you think, what in the world has happened? I mean, in less than 12 hours, I've become a follower of Christ. I have been disowned by my family I am now unemployed and my future looks bleak. This whole marriage thing, I know that's off the table. This opening my own clothing business, that's gone. My future, everything that I had dreamed of, it is all done. And you think, what am I supposed to do next? Eventually, finally, you're you're given a room by someone who is part of this church that meets there in this home where Peter is the leader. It's small, it's tiny, it's not much at all. It's rough, but at least it's a shelter over your head. You're able to stay there. You somehow secure a job with a Roman fruit seller. 
This guy is rough and tough and mean, and it pays almost nothing. And you have to listen to this guy make fun of you for being Jewish and make fun of you for being a Christian. He blasts you all day long. People who come and buy from you, they make fun of you. You're hungry. You're poor. Life has taken a downward turn for you. And you think, it can't get worse than this. It cannot get worse than this. And then one, one day you hear the story that Peter the leader of your church, the leader of your group in Rome has been arrested. Roman soldiers have come and they arrested Peter and they threatened Peter saying, if you do not quit talking about Christ, not only will we put you to death, but we will do so by crucifixion. And you hear that Peter responded boldly, to these Roman soldiers, if you're going to crucify me, then do it upside down because I do not deserve to die in the same manner in which my Lord Jesus Christ died. And so these soldiers honor his request. And there in this area just above where this, this home meets, they take Peter and they crucify him upside down. And you think, great. My only lifeline, my only source of joy and hope has been this little group that I've been meeting with. And what's going to happen now? Now that Peter is gone, who will lead the group? What will the future of the church be? Will they disband? Will I then have nothing, absolutely nothing here in Rome? And you start to think, you know what? I think I'm going to quit. I think I'm going to quit meeting together. With these, with these fellow Christians, I think I'm going to quit going to these worship services. I think that maybe, perhaps, I don't know, maybe I'm going to give up on the whole Jesus thing. And so you start to think, maybe I won't go to the meeting this Sunday night. I know they're gathering. I know they're talking about what they're going to do next. But I think I won't go. I'm tired of not having a job. I'm tired of being disowned by my family. I was walking down the street the other day. I saw my dad. He crossed the street, went to the other side, and act, acted like he didn't even know me. I think maybe I'll go home. If I quit meeting with the church, even if, even if I don't quit on Jesus yet, if I quit meeting with the church, maybe my family will take me back. And so you make that decision, and then you're walking down the street, and a friend from the church sees you. They say, hey, are you coming this Sunday night? And you start to kind of mutter some excuse. But before you can get it out, they say, you know, there's a letter that's come from back east from one of the leaders of the church, and he's written a letter, and this letter will be read Sunday night. And so you go home and you think, maybe I should go. I'm curious, maybe I should at least go and hear what they have to say. And so that Sunday night you go to the meeting and they sing and there's worship and you sort of half-heartedly participate. And then one of the leaders stands up and he begins to read this letter from back east, from this leader. And he reads the most beautiful letter written specifically to Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And this letter explains how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these prophecies 
of all of the laws that are found in the Torah, how throughout all of these hundreds of years of celebrations and, and uh, different festivals, how it all pointed to Jesus. And then toward the end of the letter, there is this part that seems to be written especially for you. It's like the writer of this letter knew exactly where you were in your heart and your mind. And you sit there in awe as the leader stands up and reads these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's like this part of the letter hits you right between the eyes. Exactly what, what you need to hear for this point in your life. And here is why. Several things this writer says, those uh, statements were exactly what you needed to hear. The first was this. The writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... Even though you did not go, grow up in Jerusalem, you knew exactly what this reference was to the most holy place. You called it the Holy of Holies. And it was that central area in the temple, the innermost room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant sat. The Ark of the Covenant, the holiest of relics in Jewish life, this wooden box, four feet wide, two feet high, two feet deep, completely covered in gold, with two golden cherubim on each end facing one another. That was the place in the average Jewish mindset where God himself sat right there on top of the ark. If someone asked you, you would say, yeah, well, God's everywhere. I know that. God is here in Rome. God, God is everywhere in the world. But if you really want to know where God is, God is there in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, seated there on top of the ark. That's where God himself resides. That most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was so holy that no one entered it except the high priest, and he only entered once a year. And he did not do so flippantly. He did so in a, in a specifically prescribed way, and he did so with a lot of reverence. In the book of Leviticus, there is the account 
of the sons of Aaron. Aaron was a brother of Moses. He was the first high priest. There is the account of the sons of Aaron entering the Holy of Holies in a flippant uh, manner, uh, going in without following all of the prescribed rituals that they were supposed to perform before they went in. And they went in with these hearts that were not in the right place, and God sends fire and consumes them completely. As you can imagine, uh, that left future high priest um, uh, in a, in a very scared sense where they would go in only if they followed the prescribed method. And so what they would do was one time a year on a day called the Day of Atonement or also called Yom Kippur, they would first sacrifice a bull for their own sin and for the sin of their family. They would take the blood of that bull and they would sprinkle it on the altar. Then they would sacrifice a goat, and that was for the sins of Israel. And they would take that blood, and they would sprinkle it on the altar. Then they would take another goat, and they would lay their hands on that goat, on the head of that goat, and they would cast all the sin of Israel onto that goat, and then that goat was sent out into the wilderness. And after the priest had gone through this elaborate ritual of sacrifices, of bathing, of putting on his priestly garb, only then would he enter into the Holy of Holies. And when he would go in, there would be a rope tied around his ankle, just in case God decided to take his life while he was in the Holy of Holies because he had not come in, in the, with the right heart and in the prescribed manner. If he died in the Holy of Holies, no one could go in and retrieve him, so they would drag him out. Here's what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Now, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to fear going before the presence of God. In fact, we can have confidence that the sacrifice of Jesus has completely covered our sin so that we can approach God with confidence knowing that he hears our prayers. That's the first thing the writer says. The second thing is that as we approach God, we do so by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body. The writer here says it is through a new and living way. In other words, for hundreds of years, animals were sacrificed, lambs were sacrificed, goats were sacrificed, bulls were sacrificed over and over and over again to make atonement for sin, but it was temporary. It was always temporary. It was only for a time. And then Jesus Christ came and his sacrifice was made once and for all for sin. And then God took him and he, and he raised him from the dead so that he is no longer a dead animal sacrifice, but a living sacrifice on our behalf. The writer here says, by this new and living way opened for us through the curtain. The curtain was the divide between the holy of holies and the rest of the temple. And imagine that you hear this line being read and you had heard Peter describe the events that day that Jesus was crucified. And one of the things that Peter talked about was the fact that on the day that Jesus died, that the massive curtain in the temple that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that on that day, that curtain ripped 
tore completely in two from top to bottom, signaling that God was opening the way through Jesus for us to have complete access to him. Then the writer says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that term great priest is the same term for high priest. Jesus served not only as the sacrifice for our sins, but as the great high priest, making intercession for us. Uh, Between us and God, Jesus intercedes so that he is simultaneously the one who gave his life and whose blood was shed for our sin and the one who is overseeing the sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, since we now have this confidence, since we now have this assurance of salvation, since we now can approach God knowing that we have been forgiven, you hear all of this and you think, that's right. I I get it. That's why I became a follower of Christ. To have this confidence that my sin has been forgiven. To have this peace and contentment that comes knowing I have this relationship with God. You hear all this and you think, this is great, except I'm still discouraged. I still feel like I have, I have made this choice that has caused my family to disown me. I'm really poor. I'm very tired. I'm very disheartened. What am I supposed to do next? And the writer of Hebrews says, in light of these great truths, there are four steps that we are to take. Four what, what he calls let us." In light of this, number one, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So the first step is let us draw near to God, not because it makes us more righteous, Let us draw near to God because it encourages our hearts and it reminds us of the fact that we have been fully forgiven by him, not through some ritual, not through getting it right every single time, not through avoiding sin and doing all the righteous things, but through faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The author here says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Uh, This is a reference to baptism. And in the Jewish mindset, there were these water rituals that individuals would go through. And as they perform these external rituals, washing hands, washing the body, as they went through these external rituals, they believed that there was an internal cleansing. And the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to reverse that. Here's here's what it looks like. As our hearts accept this gift of grace through faith, as our hearts are sprinkled with that faith, then we go through this external baptism, and that is a symbol, an outward symbol of an inner reality. So it's not that the outward cleanses the inner, it's that the change of the inner then is symbolized in an outer cleansing. He says, remind yourself of this fact, that that through faith there is a free gift of God, the salvation that you have attained through Jesus Christ. So the first thing is draw near to God. The second thing is let us hold unswervingly 
to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So one is draw near to God. Remind yourself of that faith experience. Number two, hold on to hope. And that's not the best word because we use the word hope differently from the way it's used here. We say things like, well, I hope the Braves win the World Series this year. It's a hope. It may or, not hap- may, may or may not happen. When we use the word hope, it's really more like a wish. So I wish the Braves would win the World Series this year. In fact, sometimes we use the word hope and it's this like ridiculous hope. Like I hope I win the lottery. Eh. <laughs> I mean, you know it's not going to happen. It's, it's a wish. I wish I would win the lottery. I hope the Braves win the World Series. I hope that my team, my team wins. I hope that things work out. It's a want, it's a wish. That's not the way the word is used here. The way the word is used here is better translated, um, look forward to. Hold on to that which you are looking forward to. It is a confident hope. So when life goes sideways, when you're discouraged, when things are not working out the way that you want them to work out, what do you do? You remind yourself of your future. You remind yourself of this future hope that is a confident hope. The writer here says, hold on to that because the God who called you to salvation holds you in his hands and your future is secure in him. So number one, draw near to God. Number two, hold on to this hope. Number three, consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This third, let us, is an action step. And the writer says, think for a moment outside of yourself and how you might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That word for spur is literally irritate. So it sounds a little funny to us. Let us consider how we might irritate one another. Well, and I do that pretty well. Here's the sense of that word. Imagine that you're walking along and a pebble hops into your shoe. And you keep walking and the pebble rubs against your foot and you keep walking, rubs a little bit more. And finally it starts to make a blister and it causes you to stop, sit down, remove your shoe, shake out the pebble, put your shoe back on and go on. Or you buy a shirt and there's a tag in your shirt and you go throughout your day and you notice there's this irritation against your skin and it gets worse and it gets worse until the point that you're done and you finally go into your bathroom and you take the shirt off and you find the tag and you cut the tag out because it's bothering you, it's irritating you that much. The word here, irritate, is is used in a sense that it causes you to take action. Just like the rock calls you to stop and take action or the tag calls you to stop and take action and cut it out. That's the sense of the word here. Let us consider how we might cause others to take action. And what's that action? To spur them on toward love and good deeds. How can we encourage others in their walk with the Lord? So he says, when you stop and consider all that God has done for you, stop for a moment and consider how can you encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ toward love and good deeds? And then finally, here's the last one. Let us not give up meeting together. 
as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So evidently, the writer of Hebrews had gotten word that all across the Roman Empire, there were those both Jewish and non-Jewish who were giving up. The persecution had caused them to just, they just wanted to quit. They were done. It was hard. People were coming after them for their faith in Christ. And so they quit meeting together. And the writer of Hebrews said, don't, don't stop meeting together. You need one another. You need one another to encourage one another or you're never going to make it. So as you see the day approaching, that is the judgment day, the day of Christ's return. As you see this day approaching, keep meeting together. Otherwise, you will never make it as a Lone Ranger Christian. Imagine you're sitting there, you hear these words, you're discouraged, you're ready to quit, you're tired of being poor, you're tired of being disowned by your family, you're tired of life, and here the writer says, keep going, keep going, keep going, and it gives you the encouragement you need to keep pursuing Christ. That situation that I described for you very likely was the case for many Jewish Christians sometime around 65 AD. The writer of Hebrews was most likely a man named Apollos. Uh, if you want to read his story, go to Acts 18. Uh, Apollos was a, uh, a well-read, very learned Jewish individual who for a period of time pastored the church in Corinth. It was a difficult church to pastor. He eventually left there. And most likely he wrote the book of Hebrews to Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And in the book, he both intellectually encourages them that see how it all fits together. See how Jesus is the promised anticipated Messiah to both help them get their, their minds around this fact that Jesus is the only answer that makes sense to all of these passages and all of these traditions that led up to this point and as well to encourage them when it's tough, when you're ready to quit, to keep pursuing Christ. And so two application points for us that are very simple. Number one, in your walk with the Lord, you need others. When you became a follower of Christ, you not only were called into a relationship with God, as well you were called into a relationship with others that is called a faith community or what we most commonly call the church. You were saved, not just from your sin, but out of the world and into this body called the church. And you will never make it on your own as a follower of Christ. Life is hard. Following Christ at times is hard. We live in a broken world. We are broken people. You will become discouraged. You will struggle with sin. You will struggle with bad habits. You will struggle with apathy. You will struggle in so many different ways. And so the Bible makes it very clear that in our walk with the Lord, we need others. And here's the second one. Others need you. 
You see, when you're called into a relationship with Christ, you are also called into a community of faith with people who need you. So if you say to me, hey, I know you say that I need others to follow Christ, but I really don't. And maybe you say, I'm a, I'm a pretty good Lone Ranger Christian. Maybe you say, I get up every morning and I, I get my Bible and I get my coffee and I sit and I read my, my quiet time for the day. I read a passage of scripture and then I spend time praying and I am good to go. I don't need anybody else. I can make it on my own. Fine, I'll give you that. Fair enough. Let's say that you're able to do that. Even though you're really not, and maybe you can last for a while, but you can't last forever. But let's say for right now, for a period of time, you can make it on your own. That's fine. That's good. Except others need you. You are called into a community of faith where others need your encouragement. They need your support. They need your prayers. They need you to spur them on toward love and good good deeds. When they're down, when they're discouraged, you may be the perfect person to help them keep going in pursuing Christ. We are concluding our series today uh, that we are calling one another. And the first week we talked about how uh, Christians by nature are a forgiving people, uh, that a Christian community is marked by forgiveness because we have been forgiven much. We should be willing to forgive others as well. And then if you were here last week, you heard Stephen give a great message on bearing one another's burdens. So we are called to shoulder the load uh, that others bear to help them in their walk. And then today, the writer of Hebrews says that we are called to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to help them in their walk with Christ. I am called to do that, and you are as well.